someone else needs to pull you out so your flesh doesn't throb with every painful beat of your heart. But as water safety books advise, you should warm up flesh to flesh. And I would definitely want flesh to flesh, especially with someone I'd known through most of the ages we've lived so that as we hold each other, we're feeling the memory of the creamy flesh of youth beneath the final folding tissue of this skin. The voice of Catherine Williams from the book Still Life. This is the Poet in the Poem from the Library of Congress, post-production by Mike Turpin, MET Studios. We wish to thank the Library of Congress for making the program possible. Funding is provided by the Rivada Foundation of the Logan Family, by the Sinipid Fund, Natalie Canavore and Sandy Jackson Cohen. Mike Turpin's our engineer, and I'm Grace Cavalieri. Good morning and welcome to Film on 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO, as you know, is a volunteer-powered community platform, which means that we are funded by you, the listener. Today, we are joined by Matthew of KBOO's Gremlin Time to reach into the past and look again at The Rocketeer, based on the distinctive comic book, followed by a compare and contrast with the recent animated Spider-Man movie. But first, this special review of a new Criterion release. You're going to be party to an attempt to kill a man. This is the asphalt jungle. This is New York City, with its fancy women and fancy hoodlums with its very special beat, its very special places, its hunters and hunted. And you will walk side by side with Frankie Bono as he stalks his prey, knowing what is in his mind, feeling what is in his heart. And your hands will sweat with his fear. Your pulse will pound with his desire. Frankie, no! You're going to have to pay luxury prices, boy. I'll pay you nothing. And even as he prepares to unleash his blast of silence, you will discover that you and Frankie Bono are playing the most dangerous game in the world. The holidays may be over, but Christmas is here again. That's thanks to the Criterion Collection upgrade of its release of Blast of Silence. Blast was made during a rare window of filmmaking. This was in the late 50s and early 60s when ebullient, aspiring filmmakers made truly independent movies. Such films include Something Wild, Murder by Contract, a film beloved by Martin Scorsese, and the Greenwich Village Story, among others. All made with a slim budget that even Andy Warhol would find too meager. Among this group is Alan Barron's Blast of Silence. Released in 1961 and made by Barron on a shoestring that includes himself as writer, 
director and star with cinematography by the producer using equipment left over by a Hollywood film crew in 1959 when Fidel Castro overthrew the government. Many of these truly independent films take crime as a subject matter, possibly because it's easier to shoot crime films on smaller budgets, on real locations, and with a tighter focus on human foibles and conflict. Here, Frank Bono, played by Barron, is a hitman from Cleveland hired to revisit New York City and take out somebody the mob needs eliminated. He arrives during the Christmas season, rendered immeasurably more bleak by his tasks, his memories of his past, and the paltry Christmas seasonal decorations scattered about. So this is no die-hard or eyes-wide-shut Christmas movies that use the holiday as a convenient setting for character exploration and action, but the spirit or dispiriting nature of Christmas goes to the very core of the film's project and the character's interior lives. The Criterion Blu-ray release is a duplicate of their earlier regular DVD with all the same extras, etc., except that the picture is much better and has been reframed to better capture the film's composition in its cinematography. Enjoying Criterion Collection number 428, Blast comes in a new 4K digital restoration presented in the, the two aspect ratios, its widescreen and its full screen versions, and has uncompressed mono audio soundtrack. Extras include Requiem for a Killer, the making of Blast of Silence, an hour-long making of from 2008 that is a mite bit longer than it needs to be, a gallery of on-set Polaroids, compare and contrast photos of locations from the film when it was made and then later in 2008, a trailer, English subtitles, and an insert with an essay by Pauline Kael disciple Terence Rafferty and a four-page adaptation of the start of the film by artist Sean Phillips, who also did the striking cover. Among the oddities of the film was the casting of Larry Tucker as Big Ralph. Mr. Tucker was a colleague of director Paul Mazursky and collaborated with him on his first few films. The music was composed and conducted by Meyer Kupferman, a complete neophyte brings a beatnik spirit to the soundtrack. So why are we recommending a low-budget show with sometimes ragged transitions and imperfect audio recording and is heavily reliant on the voiceover narration that was composed by Waldo Salt and is read by Lionel Stander, both Red Scare disputants? Not only is it a good story, but the film takes the viewer into a lowly, modi world rarely observed from the inside. One can see why Scorsese so likes this minor genre, and Blast may have been on his mind while making Mean Streets. Despite the film's occasional surface clumsiness, it is that rare thing, a work of sheer naturalism without theatricality. Neorealism meets film noir.
Now, Matthew joins us to discuss The Rocketeer. Recently, there's been a lot of articles about the poor box office performance of The Marvels, the recent film from the Marvel Studios. And they're trying to say that there's things like superhero fatigue, we're tired of these type of movies, or Marvel's lost it, they don't know what they're doing anymore, and that sort of nonsense. And what these uh, people overlook is that uh, there was the actor's strike and the writer's strike, and the actors were unable to make appearances on uh, TV talk shows to uh, promote this film. And that was reflected in the uh, poor box office performance of the Marvels. And of course, nowadays, these films have the the streaming services, and so the studios will eventually make back their costs, because this is a, a really nice movie. But I didn't want to talk about that today. I wanted to go back and look at an older uh, superhero movie inspired by the comic books, which came out in 1991, and that's uh, Joe Johnson's adaptation of the great uh, Dave Stevens comic strip, the Rocketeer, currently streaming on Disney+. Plus. Just listen to me for a minute. Jealous. You found out that I was here with Neville and no, you said... No, I'm not jealous. Listen, Jenny, Bigelow's been murdered. Murdered? You remember at the studio what I told you about the rocket we found? Well, the people that are looking for it murdered Bigelow to get to me. And now they're after you. They have your picture, the one from the TV. Jenny, prepare yourself for a shock. I'm the Rocketeer. The Rocket who? Oh, for crying out loud, haven't you read the papers? No, I've been working all day. Wait, look, it's them. The guys with the Over snapshot. There. You gotta get out of here. I want you to get in a cab right now, go to your mom's in Redlands and stay there until you... Bruce Campbell, uh, Jennifer Connelly, and Alan Arkin head up a very fine cast in this wonderful period adventure piece, which is a homage to the uh, movie serials from the 40s and 30s. This is set in 1938, and we've got stunt pilot Cliff Secord, and so we've got a... Uh, the Flyboy uh, movie uh, mojo going on in this. And uh, the movie opens on an airfield as they're wheeling this racing plane out, this very odd-looking plane. You know, keep her straight, keep her level. It's your first time up, so don't do anything interesting. Who, me? Yeah, you. And remember, she stalls out at about 100. So keep the airspeed up, otherwise you can be drifting around all over the sky. And if the ailerons start to shimmy, baby, I have flown a plane or two in my life. You know? Not like this one you have, and this one's, this one's a handful. You sneeze in this thing, and you can end up upside down on the beach. We field. have a lot of, you know, technical talk, but uh, we also find out that uh, there's something at stake here. You treat her nice, Clifford. She's going to take us all the way to the Nationals. Make some history. Yeah. So Cliff and Peavy are getting this plane ready to for a big uh, air race, which was very big back then. You had planes actually racing around a big field with two poles that they rolled around. And uh, the plane that's used in this movie is a reproduction of the plane that actually uh, Colonel James Doolittle used uh, when he was racing in the 1930s. You know, later he'd be more famous for the attack on Tokyo in uh, World War too. But here, the movie opens up like, like a movie like The Aviator or something, and we're going to be a story about flying and machines and that sort of thing. But the film makes a change. We've got 
uh, a chase that's happening and it turns out a, a piece of equipment has been stolen and the feds are after these gangsters who in their desperation to get away they they hide the uh, equipment in uh, this hangar but then as they try to escape they end up there a stray bullet hits cliff's airplane and we have this spectacular crash and at the end of it cliff and pv are now in debt are being charged for all the damage that's being done and so now they're in this situation where they have to accept a job while working in this air circus and so as they are trying to get this older plane uh, ready to uh, fly they come across this uh, hidden package what are we doing here here take the bag well that's a piece of work isn't it yeah what do you suppose it is a bomb or something uh, too complex to be a bomb i don't see any moving parts i wouldn't touch that if i were you so as they're trying to figure out what this object is in true movie serial fashion we cut away to the villains to find out Sorry, what's going on truly now what went wrong what went wrong is the feds that went wrong this was supposed to be a simple snatch and grab what the hell is going on i didn't say to be simple eddie and snatch and grabs which you're supposed to be good at that's what i pay you for now where's the package Nothing's going to happen with me and my boys until you tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. The story is all very nicely plotted out, a real homage to the movie serials, and especially the Commando Cody, the Rocket Man adventures from uh, Republic Studios. So we find out that Cliff and PV have found this rocket pack. And meanwhile, we find out that the gangsters who've been set to steal it are actually working for a Nazi spy played by Timothy Dalton in a character who's sort of a, a throwback to um, Errol Flynn, which at the time that this movie came out, it was thought that Errol Flynn was actually a Nazi agent. That has since been disproven. But at the time of the production, it was a pretty good sort of hook on the film. So we've got the bad guys trying to find the rocket. We have Cliff, who's really excited about flying it at first. But then all these other things are coming up that he'd rather be rid of it. But he's sort of forced into being a hero, first saving uh, one of the other pilots whose plane's about to crash at this air show. And all these newspaper cameras uh, see him and they make a big thing out of it. And so the story goes along that in fine movie serial fashion, which ends up with a big shootout at the Griffith Observatory, a giant Zeppelin, and you know, in the end, this is a really enjoyable adventure film that um, is, is really, it still holds up. And, it, and it's a very, very wonderfully photographed, really great performances. Connolly and Campbell ended up having a, a five-year relationship after their performance in this film. And you can kind of see the sparks fly between them in the different scenes that they do in this movie. Now... This movie is the result of almost a 10-year effort by cartoonist Dave Stevens to get his uh, Rocketeer character, which first appeared in the early 1980s as a backup feature in a lowly independent comic, which has since been uh, uh, totally forgotten about. And 
Uh, Stevens had been working in the movie industry as a uh, storyboardist and a production designer. And so he was able to get the thing uh, uh, produced. He got a script together and they were able to get Joe Johnson in as the uh, director. Um, the main problem with the film is that the executives couldn't quite get behind it. The idea of something first adapted from the lowly Republic uh, studios was kind of, uh, they looked down upon, and they wanted to like update it. I mean, the head of the studio wanted them to have like a sort of spaceman helmet instead of the cool Art Deco one that he wears in this. But the uh, Stevens and Joe Johnson persevered and the, the movie turned out pretty much a really nice detailed costume piece, but not a drama. It's more of a melodrama adventure with all sorts of chases and gunfights. But uh, still, the studio couldn't quite get behind who they wanted to aim it at. Because of the character's name of Rocketeer, they wanted to come out with a line of toys with that character. Instead, they got this nice period piece, and they couldn't quite decide whether to aim it at uh, young adults or children. Well, the young adults, they felt at that time, wouldn't buy the toy, and the children wouldn't get the movie if it was too over their head. So there's a lot of problems with the film. It, like I said, in the intro, we have this nice, leisurely, panoramic view of the airfield and them setting up. And you'd think you were going to get a movie like The Aviator, like I said. But instead, it turns into this pulp melodrama, which is really exciting. So at the time, the, it didn't get the quite um, push that it needed. And so the box office wasn't as good. And so the plans for a couple of sequels uh, didn't follow through. And so we just have the one film, uh, The Rocketeer. Now, in the end, though, Joe Johnson would later go on to make Captain America, the first Avenger, a, a practically pitch-perfect film. And this is a sort of setup for that here in uh, The Rocketeer. Uh, Jennifer Connelly's character is very similar to uh, the uh, Peggy Carter character in the Captain America film, and the, the way that Steve Rogers is played is a little bit like Cliff Secord. So it's out on... Um, uh, Blu-ray, but it's now streaming on Disney. There's no extras on the disc, um, probably because they wouldn't have very many complimentary things to say about the Disney executives. But it still holds up as a really great uh, adventure film, The Rocketeer. And you're listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio KBO Portland. Please consider becoming a member today. Now Matthew rejoins us to discuss the new Spider-Man. Supposed to be Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse continues the adventures of Miles Morales as Spider-Man in this multiverse setting that has been established in the Marvel films, in the live-action films, and now here in the animated films, there's a whole universe of different Spider-Mans that there are, and the cartoon feature. Uh, 
It's, it kind of reminds me at certain points of the uh, Pixar film, Ralph Wrecks the Internet, where you've got all of these visual jokes and references being laid out as the characters are running around being chased or something. But here, they're all the different incarnations of Spider-Man that you've seen in every cartoon TV series that has appeared ever since um, Stanley and Steve Ditko came out uh, with Spider-Man in the early 1960s. Now, just I want to get back a little bit about uh, Ditko and Stan Lee. Now, uh, Ditko kind of came up with this sort of character, this high school setting, and he's an outcast with his schoolmates. But it was Stan Lee's original idea to have a superhero who was a teenager and the problems that young uh, adults have. Uh, Stan himself... Uh, when he was in high school, he had to go to work after classes to support his family. And so if you remember in the Spider-Man uh, stories, Peter Parker had to go to his job. as a, Even though he was Spider-Man, he was working at a newspaper giving him pictures of Spider-Man. And so this was like the setup for the first few years of Spider-Man. Stan uh, righteously knew that you had to expand the character and you couldn't keep him in the same thing. Whereas Ditko felt that uh, Peter Parker should be kind of like Archie Andrews, where he's always in high school. But Stan realized that you, you have to change the character, but still keep things the same. And so as the years progressed, uh, Peter Parker went to college and he went on to other uh, professions. He even took a teacher's license at one time and taught at the high school that he went to. Uh, he had a daughter. And then they've like introduced other Spider-Mans in the comic books, eventually coming to the uh, Miles Morales Spider-Man, who is like part black, part Puerto Rican. And that has been adapted into the Spider-Man, into the Spider-Verse movie that, that came out a couple of years ago. This current film picks up on it, but it changes things around. We start off with the Gwen Stacy uh, Spider-Woman character in her universe. And we are introduced to her problems, how she's kind of alienated with her dad because of the Peter Parker in that universe uh, is not Spider-Man. She's the spider character, the spider hero. He instead became what was in the early um, Spider-Man stories, the lizard, a person who's trying to improve their powers or get a limb back or something and becomes this super-powered monster character. And this is introduced in the pre-credit sequence. And we and they understand what uh, Gwen is upset about, that uh, she used to know this guy and she and he ended up dying and she gets blamed for it and so her father is now looking for spider-woman to avenge the death of her his daughter's best friend not realizing that it was actually his daughter who was on the scene and she's not responsible for peter's death and this leads to a nice break or well not a nice but it leads to a breakup between the characters that's nicely presented in a very good montage it couples her drumming in this band and then it leads to her break, leaving the band and eventually leaving her father and ending up with this cadre of other spider heroes from different universes. And in this, we eventually find out why she is unable to go back to see Miles, even though she thinks about him all the time. And Miles, of course, is thinking about her all the time. So we have this nice sort of split lovers uh, situation at the beginning. 
of this where eventually we get back to Miles and here he's trying to be Spider-Man and, and do things with his parents but he's keeping it a secret and this is kind of an analogy to you know your young life where you're trying to find your way in the world and you don't want to have your parents telling you what to do all the time and in this um, early sequences the Miles' parents are kind of worried about him because he's late for these things and he seems to be preoccupied with stuff and then they find him with uh the Gwen Stacy, the Spider Woman, uh, who is uh, is working with the Spider Cadre to get this uh, super villain, and so she happens to be in, in Miles's universe, and so she drops in to visit him. But from that, he like follows her and follows her into the Spider Verse and finds out a whole situation that goes on. It's just a wonderful uh, expansion of the uh, story elements that are in the first movie. Now, there, there's going to be a third movie coming up. Um, in this, I, I liked how the human situation is played off of this elaborate uh, conflict between this interdimensional villain and Spider-Man. And so we have Miles' parents who are worried about Miles. What's he doing? And then he, they are sort of relieved to find that he's not up to something criminal or drugs or anything. He's met this girl. But then, of course, that sets up a whole other problems with uh, the parents, you know, accepting that Miles is, is now grown up. The movie introduces all sorts of different rendering styles in the course of telling its story. Different things, the... There, in the beginning uh, sequence, we have this montage <clears throat> where uh, we learn about Gwen Stacy's situation in her universe. And she leaves her band. She breaks up with the band. And she just like starts walking down the street. And the camera's like following her. But as she walks, the, the background changes from a sidewalk to walking in a subway car, going through a station. And it... And, it's, and the different um, look of the uh, uh, backgrounds, different colors, different tones is nicely integrated from scene to scene. And what's amazing is all these different images that are thrown at you in the course of this story, you're never really confused. You can, you know, different typefaces are thrown at and some characters, they're all just like squiggly lines, it seems like. But still, you follow through this thing uh, wonderfully well. And it doesn't get confusing or over your head and in contrast with uh, the previous film I was talking about Rocketeer where they really had to struggle to get the look of that film which really makes the story work and not make it conform to accepted standards where like a character being you know upgraded to a contemporary setting and having a more practical costume whereas in this movie, we have this amazing story that's being presented. We have the, the introduction of each of these spider characters and that's zip, 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 that's given in a quick montage that never leaves you. You've got a, a line of comic books about this character and their setting and their different supporting characters and how it plays on the original Spider-Man story from uh, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee from back 60 years ago. But what's really amazing about this film it does this thing which I've mentioned before, um, coming off of an observation that Martin Scorsese has made about film directors, of how the director has to be a sleight-of-hand artist, a magician, 
and to be able to introduce something and distract an audience to keep them interested and then bring something back. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock would introduce a clue and then he'd introduce a second clue and you'd wave that clue around and we the audience would know that the characters needed to find that clue and they're not finding that clue and in fact the clue disappears before they find it and so as the viewers you thought oh now things lost but then that first clue comes back up that you remember and the story is able to continue they do this in this movie in the most brilliant way we've established all these different universes and stuff and then the ending of the film takes a very unexpected and sinister turn, which makes perfect sense once it's laid out to you. But as we're leading up to it, we're totally distracted by what's going on with Gwen and her situation, what's going on with Miles and how he feels about his parents, and the reason that the other Spider-Mans in the Spider-Verse don't associate with Miles, and what makes him uh, different and unique from all of the other Spider-Mans that are in this. And it leads into a sort of cliffhanger about what's going to happen in the third movie. Now, I don't want to give any sort of a spoiler for it. And it's part of the enjoyment of the film of how masterly they're able to keep your attention, introduce this strange setting. All of this variety of characters are all thrown at you at, at a, sometimes a fast pace and sometimes a leisurely place. Uh, we have moments of intimacy between the characters. We've got Miles and Gwen having a little romantic talk together. But they're since they're Spider-Man, they are sitting on the bottom of a balcony, upside down, looking at the uh, horizon. Or we have a, a scene between uh, Miles and his mother, and where she's, you know kind of explaining how she's worried about him because you know as a as a parent you like teach your child how to ride a bicycle and the child says you're not going to let me go are you and the parent says no I'm not going to let you go knowing full well that you will let them go that's really nicely wrapped up here in this uh, recent uh, animated film with a combination from Sony Pictures and Marvel uh, Studios Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse I can't wait for the third one to come out Thanks again, Matthew, and thank you for listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching your screens.
This is KBOO Portland, listener-powered, non-corporate community radio. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. This month's Development Committee meeting will be held on Monday, January 22nd at 4.30 p.m. The meeting will be held online via a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify a meeting is being held. 